you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Uh, we're going to go in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Um, we're going to continue the Sermon on the Plain this week. It will not be the only time we talk about the Sermon on the Plain as we go through lectionary this year. Um, I want us to kind of prepare ourselves for the reading, kind of like we did last week, because these readings are tough to preach when you're coming from these passages, because... And I'm reiterating, I know, what I did last week, because Jesus has already preached this as well as I think it can be preached. You know, like, I feel like sometimes we preachers do a disservice to the text by feeling some kind of necessity to find things in there just to sound interesting when we come on Sunday morning. Um, but in many ways, I feel like this sermon is so powerful and so challenging that uh, we muddy the water a bit if we try to add too much to the interpretation of it or, or into what we should be seeing in it. That's one part of my struggle with the text this morning. My second struggle with the text this morning, or not struggle, but challenge slash opportunity maybe I should say, um, is that this is still part of, really part of Jesus' prophetic um, utterance and calling. You know, this starts back in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus reads in the synagogue from Isaiah, the spirit, of the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the prisoner, the captive, the bound. Um, and now Jesus is embodying that. He's actually out among the people, healing the sick, healing the blind, setting the captives free, casting demons out. And there's a crowd of people that are following him and they're grabbing a hold of him because power is coming out of him. And Jesus then turns his attention to his disciples, as we talked about last week. He lifts up his eyes. He looks his disciples square in the eyes, right in front of God and everybody, right in front of this crowd of people, and challenges them by telling them that God has favored the poor among the crowd, that God has favored the sad among the crowd, that God is, that God is looking upon them. And not just in a way that is passive, but he is actively blessing them. And then Jesus turns that particular view to the other side of the coin and says, Woe to those. God is cautious of those who put their comfort in the things that they can acquire and in their wealth and in their possessions. And all of this is really, um, is really prophetic in nature. And I just had a great conversation this past week um, with Missy, actually. We were a meeting about other things, and we were talking about, like, you know, the difference between just uttered, uttered prophetic ministry and then embodied prophetic ministry, right? And, like, don't do that, man. That's, like, going to get me all fired up over here. <laughs> uh, like, there's a difference between having all the talk and not really doing any of the walk. And if we're not careful, especially in an era where the world is much more open to hearing the message of justice and righteousness and peace, that we not just become a mouthpiece with no hands and feet and no arms and legs, right? Um, that we become embodied prophetic ministry. 
So you take that first half of the sermon and you can get away with just being, you know, just uttering it and sounding all, all pompous and virtue signal all day long. Well, blessed are the poor and blessed are the sad and woe is the rich and woe are those who take comfort in things. But then Jesus calls us deeper this morning. He calls us into an, in, an embodied prophetic ministry. One that isn't just based on challenging words, but on challenging ourselves to lean into actions and ethics that testify that the kingdom of God is indeed at hand. And so um, let's take a moment like we did last week and just settle our hearts and our minds and our souls. And then I'm going to read the sermon from Jesus. And then I'm going to offer some of my very brief observations and just ask the Holy Spirit to move and to speak to us in only the ways that the Spirit can, lest we muddy the waters too much with our own thoughts and our own words. Sound good? All right. Let's just take a moment of silence. Maybe close your eyes. Just prepare yourselves. I'm going to read this text and then just take a few more seconds of time just to, just to let them sit with us. Starting at verse 27 of Luke 6. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given unto you. A good measure. Press down. Shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. So like I said, this morning's reading is another really hard one to preach from. Um, not just for the reasons I stated earlier, that this is a sermon from Jesus. So it's like, what do I have to add or give to that, um, 
But just as a reading itself, this is a hard sermon to swallow, right? Like, this is a hard one to hear. It's hard no matter where you're at, right? Like, no matter what you're going through, whether things seem great or whether you're in despair, this sermon covers all the bases. Woe to you when you feel too comfortable. And when things are rotten and people are treating you bad, be merciful and love them anyway. Do good to those who do bad things to you. Share with others and expect nothing in return. If you follow the ways of this world and you do it the way they do it, you only love those who love you, you only give to those who will give back to you, you're only good to those who are good to you, then what difference are you making? What, how is that any different than the system that currently has you bound and oppressed? This system of reciprocity. You give me a little, I give you a little. You be good to me, I'll be good to you. You benefit me, I will benefit you. These are the kind of cycles and systems that political powers use to keep people bound, that religious powers use to keep people bound. And Jesus is inviting his listeners into a new kingdom and a new ethic with a new, new laws and new ways to think about the world and new ways to behave. So this is a hard sermon to preach for those reasons. That's not all. This reading is rife with complications. Not just the radical calls to love and forgiveness themselves, which are hard enough, but the gray areas that such commandments necessarily create. Such as the important questions of what does an exhortation like turn the other cheek mean when heard by an abuser or someone who wants to keep another person in an abusive relationship. That's a gray area that gets all icky, right? What about the one of love those who want to do bad to you? Well, what does that mean to those of us who want to love and protect our families from bad people? One of those gray areas that such a sermon kind of opens up for us. And by the way, I'm not even going there this morning we got 2,000 years worth of church, church ethic writings to try to figure those gray areas out, right? I'm only pointing out that they are there. And we should not ignore them, nor should we just pass over them, because they are important questions. Because there are parts of this text that have been used historically in abusive ways, and in manipulative ways, and in ways in which they were not intended to be used. I know in my tradition, this passage was rarely preached in its entirety. We normally heard the beatitude part, the blessed, blessed, blessed part, and then we heard this last verse. And by the way, it was really hard for me to read that last verse and not like preach it the way I always heard it preached, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. He'll give it to you, pressed down, now, shaking together, right? Running over, falling into your lap, you know. Wow, I actually still have it a little bit. That's mm, like muscle memory. Might come back. Um, so oftentimes the way that I heard this message preached was just the blessed parts, the beatitudes, and then this part about uh, pressed down, shaken together, running over in full measure, falling in your lap. Which was often preached, this last verse, which was often preached out of context and heard only as a text about generosity that leads to prosperity. It really wasn't even a text about generosity. It was really more of a text about prosperity. 
Because true generosity, as defined in the context of this sermon, is generosity that gives, expecting nothing in return, right? But that's the way it was often heard in the way that I grew up. It was just this part at the beginning and this part kind of at the end. Probably because of some of the complications that such a passage brings up. And I think also because we just didn't know how to deal with a lot of those things, right? Like, we, we just wanted to focus on the blessings and the prosperity, I mean, who has time for all these woes that make you feel bad for living a comfortable life, which, like many of you in this room, speaks to me as well? I have a comfortable life. And so the woes are challenges to me as well, not just to the others I might imagine it to be talking about, right? But to me as well. Who's got time to deal with that, especially in church? I mean, We don't want to hear woes that make us feel bad about being too comfortable. We don't want to deal with teachings that may leave us feeling powerless and with more gray areas than we like in our life, than we prefer in our life. I know some of you out here, because I've had some really good conversations with you over the past few weeks, some of you have a very high tolerance for gray areas. Some of you are like, no, 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 no. Get me out of the gray as fast as you can, right? Not for me. Give me the ins and the outs, the rights and the wrongs, the pros and the cons, and I'll be satisfied. Um, so I'm sorry if you're already feeling bummed about the sermon this morning. Just say that because I know I'm being very uh, despairing about it. And so this week as I wrestled with this passage, and I, I, you know, when, you, when you preach each week, you kind of live with the passage. You think about it and you sleep on it and you, you ponder it. And in my own life, I began to kind of deal with the fact that maybe my discomfort with this passage was directly tied to the historical misappropriation of verse 38 that I'm used to. This verse that says, press down, shaken together, blah, blah, blah. You see, when we don't hear the promises uh, of blessings that are measured well, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, when we don't hear those as a guarantee of prosperity, but rather we place it in correct context with the whole of this sermon by Jesus, what we should hear then, when we put it in context, is an assurance that generosity leads to generosity. Not that generosity leads to prosperity, but that generosity leads to generosity, right? We give expecting nothing in return, but the more that we do these things, the more the margins of, 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 our, of our life and, 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 the, and the people we welcome into it and, and the people we love into it and the people we embrace into it get wider and wider, And so do the blessings that we receive from those new places of generosity. Not necessarily prosperity for prosperity's sake, but generosity. I think in some ways this passage is like some books. It's best to read the last part first. You know, you ever read a book that's just really awful and you're like, okay, I got to know where this is heading or I'm going to stop. Maybe I'm the only one. And so if I get a book that I'm like three chapters in and I can't get into it, I go to the last chapter and I skim a little. And I'm like, oh, okay, now, okay, now I'm ready to see how all of this unfolds. This passage for me kind of operates that way. When I look at it from the bottom up, this idea that generosity leads to generosity, I begin to understand that this text is really a text about living a generous life, living a life that is generous. Um, And Jesus has just finished speaking to his disciples. We talked about this last week where he's specifically addressing, it appears, the 12 he has just called in Luke. He's healed the crowd. The crowd is pressing on him. Jesus lifts up his eyes 
and he looks at his disciples and he, he speaks to them the Beatitudes. But now, in this passage this morning, Jesus widens his audience. I don't know if you caught that or not in the first verse of our reading. Jesus widens his audience. Let's rewind just a bit and go to the last part of Jesus' uh, sermon that we read last week, the, the last part of the reading last week. Jesus said, But woe to you who are rich who have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, you all, when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now one would think in this sermon that Jesus, now look, verse 27, Jesus says, or Luke says, but I say to you that listen, in, in Luke's version of Jesus' sermon here, but I say to you that listen. So now the audience is broadened, right? It's not just the 12 that he's looking at. He's now speaking to everyone who is in an earshot of what he is saying. He says to those that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now one would think that what's about to come next, right? Like we just left off with this, woe to you who find comfort, woe to you who are laughing now, woe to you who are full now. If we, if we were just to stop there, we would think Jesus' next step would be, what would we seem reasonable, is that after all those woes, he would then give exhortations on giving up money, ease, and prestige. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus issues a call not to give up material things, but to love, to regard others with mercy. And to sacrifice one's comfort on behalf of another. This is a call to the entire crowd. To be like those whom Jesus just said were blessed. To live like the blessed in the kingdom. Who do not hate back when they are hated. Who do not resent others who oppress them. And who do not seek revenge against those who persecute. What Jesus is prescribing here is a completely countercultural way of living, a way completely countercultural to the world that his listeners typically inhabited. Jesus is flipping the script here. It's a revelation to this crowd that the poor, the hungry, and the sad actually do have something to give to the world. See, the way the social structure was set up, a lot of times the poor class and the blind class and the, uh, and the former prisoner class and the current prisoner class, those on the lower ends or the outer edges of the society, were often at the mercy of those who could give them the things that they needed. I mean, like the entire debt interest system emerges out of this context. You had things happening like very wealthy Pharisees actually loaning money to poor widows so they could pay their temple tax at ridiculous interest rates and then taking their houses from them. Josephus estimates that about 80% of the land in and around Jerusalem at the time of Second Temple Judaism, particularly at the time of Jesus' ministry, about 80% of the land was owned by those who were in power at the temple. 
And they had acquired this land through a system of giving and then expecting higher interest rates to be paid back, things they knew people couldn't pay back. It wasn't just that either, right? Like, those who were blind had to rely on the goodness and the kindness of others. But even in that system, the rich and the powerful often expected something in return. We'll give to you, but we expect something back. For those of you who have any experience with poverty, whether you grew up in it or currently dealing with some things or know those who do, you know how this cycle of always needing those who have something to help you, how self-defeating it is, especially when they expect something in return, often something greater in return than what you can pay back. It can often be debilitating. And yet Jesus looks out on this crowd who probably feel like all of their lives really is controlled by those who have, and they're the have-nots. And Jesus provides a new revelation. The current world system tells you that you don't have anything to give. But I tell you, you have lots to give. And you are going to give it in a way that the world does not know how to give. You have something to offer. But not like the religious and political power brokers do. No, not like that. You don't have something to offer that you're going to expect something in return. Listen, church, the gifts of mercy, love, and forgiveness were never to be used as weapons or tools to gain power over people. May the church take notice. The message, the good news, was never intended to be something which we gave to people expecting something in return, some form of reciprocity. Rather, we draw from the well of God's limitless mercy, which we all know none of us would ever be able to pay God back for. His unlimited grace. And while we have these gray areas that uh, have been created and need to be addressed, let us be clear that what Jesus is inviting his audience to is not a way of endorsing continued abuse. Or a way of passively, passively allowing further abuse and exploitation. What Jesus is doing here is he is revealing to his listeners that they are not as poor as they might imagine. But that they have access to a storehouse of resources that have been given to them by their father. And make no mistake, what Jesus is asking of them was indeed given by their father. Jesus confesses as much in verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The well of mercy which you draw from is the same well that God has given to you. It is God's mercy that makes room for our mercy. It is God's love that makes room for our love. It is God's generosity that makes room for our generosity. Now speaking of verse 36, the Bible scholars among us, might have noticed that Luke's, Luke has completely rephrased the words of Jesus as found in Matthew's version of this sermon, which is often the more popularly preached version of this sermon for several reasons, not least of which is the one I'm about to talk about. Um, you might notice that it's, it's been rephrased in several places, actually. You see, Luke's Jesus in this sermon is much more universal compared to Matthew's Jesus in this sermon. Uh, for instance, when Matthew talks about those who do good because people do good to them, 
He doesn't just use the general term sinners. He's very specific. Matthew says the tax collectors and Gentiles. Right? I guess every generation has their their pet group of sinners that they especially hate. Tax collectors and Gentiles. Jesus is much more universal than Luke. Jesus just says sinners. Matthew ends this particular passage, this particular section of the sermon, by quoting from the Torah and emphasizing righteous living, very righteous living, by the way, by saying this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To which I say, thank God that wasn't the lectionary reading for today. I get out of that one. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Luke doesn't say that. Instead, Luke says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now Luke's audience, just to recap this a little bit, Luke's audience, at the time it was written, find themselves in that in-between space. The temple has fallen, the religious institution that Christianity has emerged out of is no more. The power structures have come tumbling down. And both Jews and Gentile converts are now scratching their head and saying, what do we do now? What do we do now that the institution that gave birth to us and the institution that once formed us is no more? Theologically, how do we even imagine what this looks like for us? How does this continue? Coupled with the fact that this generation also thought Jesus would return before any of this stuff went down, right? Like there was still a remnant of them that believed, oh, he didn't deal with Rome now, but he's going to do it before the temple comes down, before Jerusalem falls. He'll step in. Surely he'll return before them. And so Luke's audience finds themselves in the in-between space where the old religious institution has come tumbling down, and now the followers of Jesus are having to imagine, or maybe I should say reimagine, what faith looks like in a post-religious, post-apocalyptic Israel. Luke shows us how apocalyptic moments, if nothing else it shows us, how apocalyptic moments widen the scope of our vision. Once we've experienced an apocalypse in our life or in our world or in the culture in which we live, the scope of our vision always gets wider. The margins grow. The containers for ambiguity get larger. When everything that we once found our safety and comfort in comes tumbling down, we tend to rebuild with wider margins and a higher tolerance for theological ambiguity. It's part of a necessity of reimagining how you find faith after the apocalypse. You see, apocalypses, crises, and theological deconstruction create new opportunities that demand new frameworks, or if we can be old-fashioned and quote Jesus, new wineskins for some new wine. Job is a great example of this, by the way, and I don't want to preach a sermon on Job, but just couldn't go on without mentioning the fact that Job is a great example of this in biblical literature, because here we have a man's life, whether figurative or literal, I'll let you scholars battle that out. We have a man's life who takes on the story of Israel in many ways. A man who loses everything when he shouldn't have. Because the law itself said, if you're good, God will be good to you. 
And if you're bad, bad things will happen to you. Then Israel experiences the exile and innocent people suffer. Good people go through apocalyptic times because of the actions of powerful, unrighteous people and wicked people. Job answers this same question of what do we do now when what we thought could never happen theologically has happened? How do we reimagine a God outside of a framework that once used to make us feel very comfortable and very good? The questions of life and being and of faith in Job and throughout the scriptures, even in the prophets and in the laments and in many of the Psalms is, how do we respond when what we thought would happen never happens? And how do we go on living when the things we thought about God turn out to be not exactly correct? You see, Luke is calling his audience, his post-apocalyptic audience, to reconsider the radical nature of Jesus' love and forgiveness in a world where the lines between Gentiles and Jews Tax collectors, sinners, and saints had become blurred. He calls his disciples to be rich in the ways that make us uncomfortable instead of being rich in the ways that make us comfortable. Instead of being rich with lots of money and full bellies, he calls us to be rich with enemy love, rich with mercy, rich with forgiveness. And rich with our generosity. In this new kingdom ethic, Jesus is calling his disciples to live generous lives and to live in God's generous kingdom as God's dear children. It's interesting to me, by the way, that this sermon is different than Matthew's also in environmental location. In Matthew, Jesus is only shown standing on the mountain, almost in a way that seems like he's looking over the crowd. And of course, we have no way of knowing, but just in terms of the language, it seems as though Jesus is on the mountain and the crowd is beneath him listening. But in Luke's account, Jesus isn't above his listeners. He's not above the crowd. In Luke's iteration of this story, Jesus is surrounded by the crowd. They touch him. They press on him in a way in which power is coming out of him and into them. And when he speaks, he he calls them to a flat place and is on the level with them. This is different, right? You see, when we have those very strong institutional theological boxes which we can operate in, we love to have our very important smart, powerful people up here and everybody else down here. But apocalyptic times have a way of leveling the playing field a bit. You see, apocalyptic times call us to places where we are all equal, friend and enemy. And the only one who is unequal to us is God. And he's unequal in the sense that God has the well of prosperity and wealth and love and mercy and grace that we need to draw from. So this is where we are called to live, church, on the plane, on the level, on the level. Maybe not having all 
the answers that we would like to have. And maybe feeling a little bit dazed and confused from all the shaking and breaking we see happening around us, both in the church and in the culture at large. We are called to live generous lives and to live in God's generous kingdom. Because no matter what happens, the virtues of mercy and love and forgiveness and non-judgment are virtues that will always bring the kingdom of God to bear on the present. And that is the kind of prophetic voice we are called to be. Not a prophetic voice that just tells everyone who God loves more and who God hates more. Or who God is more in favor of and who God is more cautious of. But a prophetic voice that puts their lives on the line. That turns the other cheek. That loves those who oppress us. That forgive those who do harm to us. And that gives to those who cannot give anything in return. And such is the nature of the table. We stand with me and we're going to receive the table this morning. If our musicians can come and our servers, we'll get ready to receive. You know, as I was thinking about how to end this sermon, like I really want to have a really great conclusion because I felt like most of the sermon was just my own personal theological reflections on a really, really powerful message by Jesus. And I just thought at the end of it all, probably the best conclusion to this message is actually just the embodied practice of receiving the table in which God's generosity and mercy is put on full display. In which there are no authorities on the mountainside looking over you. But where we are all equal. Where we are all in need of God's mercy and grace and love. Where we all need to drink of those things knowing that we really won't ever, to be, won't ever be able to repay God for them. We are those in most need of God's love and grace. So in the spirit of this message this morning, this table is an open table. There's no judgment here. All are welcome to receive, and if you don't want to receive, there's no judgment. You're free to not receive. But if you'd like to, it's open to you. We'll have prayer partners on either side of the front this morning. If you need prayer for anything, our prayer partners would love to pray with you. As we come this morning, let us just remember as we take the body and the blood of Jesus, God's great love and God's great mercy that's been extended to us. And may we partake not just as witnesses of what God has done for us, but with the understanding that God has now called us to be witnesses to others of what unending mercy, grace, love, and spaces of non-judgment how powerful and transformative they can be to us and to the world around us. Let's read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come.
because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.